0: It is important to then establish a relationship with the DAF because they're effectively like the back office. They're like, you know, the administrator to that donor. So you do need to engage with them and look after them in the same way you do a donor. Hey everyone, I'm Emily
1: Collins-Ellis and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the Managing Director here at IG, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers, and we want to help them better understand each other. And so we bring you season three of What Donors Want our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into Major Gifts fundraising from the donor's perspective. In each episode, we'll interview a donor and get right down to it. What
2: do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them? This advice and more straight from the donor's mouth. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson-Chef, the producer and host of the show. I hope you're all continuing to stay well and healthy and socially distant. Today's episode, as you know, is super interesting, all about DAFs. Before we dive into it and break down everything you need to know about what this acronym means and and how you can take advantage of DAFs, I want to send a huge shout out and thank you to our official Season 3 sponsor, the Siegel Family Foundation. Their partnership makes this all possible and we are so grateful. Okay, now on to today's conversation. I'm joined here now, virtually of course, by IG's Managing Director, Emily Collins-Ellis. You might recognize her voice from our fabulous new Season 3 podcast intro, it is the one and only Emily. And she's going to co-host today's episode with me. So over to you, Emily, to tell listeners more about it.
1: Thanks, Rachel. And also thank you for all the editing time that went into making my intro to the podcast sound as good as it does. You would not believe how many takes that took. Hello, listeners. It's really great to be back on. Thank you for having me back. As Rachel said, today's episode is all about death. And we specifically interviewed Prism the Gift Fund to explore this. PRISM is a DAF, also known as a donor-advised fund. It's established in the UK in 2005, and it has a mission to increase the flow of funds to the charitable sector. It's one of the largest and most well-known DAFs in the country, has assets of over 100 million pounds, and an annual donation income of over 45 million pounds. Donor Advice Funds have a real range of benefits and uses for both donors and fundraisers. So we explored all of this with Prism CEO Anna Joff, who co-founded the organization.
2: Thanks, Emily. It was a really insightful conversation, and there's certainly so much that charitable organizations of all size can take away from it. So it's definitely one to listen to and to consider. So with that said, we'll go on to the interview now and we hope you enjoy it. Bye. Bye. Welcome, Anna, to What Donors Want. We are absolutely thrilled to have you on the show today. It's, it's a real pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So you are our first DAF on the show or representing our first DAF, which is really exciting. And there's so much to dive into around that. Of course, before we really get into the meat of that discussion, we're going to start this episode off like we do all episodes with our speed round of get to know you questions. So we have six questions for you. Emily and I will kind of feed fire them at you. There's no such thing as a wrong answer. You can just uh, the first and, and silliest thing that comes to your mind. No pressure. Okay. Um, and, then, and then we'll get into what all about daffs. Are you ready for it? Go ahead. All right. So first question, what is the greatest thing that you have watched during lockdown, either a TV show or a film?
0: This Is Us, just finished series four with my son, very obsessive watching. Amazing. Can't wait for five to come out, which is delayed because of COVID.
1: I am worried about that backlog of delays on on TV that we need to have now (laughs) because they haven't been able to film. Um, What's
0: your professional superpower? I think persuasion. Mm -hmm. Persuasion, yes. a good one.
2: Very handy. (laughs) So if you could host an episode of What Donors Want and sit down and interview any philanthropist or donor of your choosing, who would it be?
0: Wow. It's a very hard question. Because actually, we we have some incredible donors, but they don't necessarily want to be named. Mm. I'm not going to name them, but I'm going to tell you the kind of person that I think is is exceptional. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of person is someone I'd want to interview. Someone who's philanthropic, generous, successful, and modest and the modest piece is very rare Mm. and when you have a donor who has that piece in their armory they are exceptional.
1: What would you say is your
0: favorite time of day? I think it probably varies depending what country I'm in or whether I'm working or on holiday. I think I like evenings a lot. I'm, I'm never a great early early bird so Evenings and in in beautiful countries, sunset for sure.
2: Mm -hmm. Do you prefer hiking or swimming?
0: Hiking. That's easy.
2: To see a sunset.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Music gig or theatre performance? Theatre. When they're allowed.
2: (laughs) I know. Hopefully back soon. All right. That's it. Pressure's off. Good. (laughs) Thank you for that. That's really great. So of course now, part two, the, the the big reason of why we're here is is to really deep dive into your work at PRISM and to explore the concepts of, of, of DAFs more broadly. So as listeners know, you are the CEO and co-founder of PRISM. But before we dive into your work there and, and, and into DAFs, could you zoom out a little bit and tell us about your background? How did you get into the world of, of philanthropy and social impact?
0: Sure. So actually, as a teenager, my family would encourage engagement in charity. And I was part of a youth movement and ended up on the committee of that youth movement, which was educational. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I then went to university, I actually got involved in partly politics and the Jewish society at that point and led that. And then post-university, again, was involved with various charities from a very early stage and just felt it was an important thing to do it was how I was brought up and it was it was of interest mm-hmm. and I always firmly believe that educational peace from a young age is critical.
1: Mm-hmm. That's great and I think that's something that we that we hear with our clients as well as it's so important to involve your children as a philanthropist it's so important to involve your children in those conversations early as well um, in thinking about social responsibility So today's episode is obviously focusing all about donor advised funds, aka DAFs, and there's so much to explore there. But for listeners who might not be familiar with what DAFs are, could you start from the very beginning and break it down for them? What exactly is a donor advised fund?
0: So first of all, in the UK, we're using an American terminology. So donor advised funds are very long, historic, well-known entities that allow a donor to tax effectively, and again, depends what country you're in, make an irrevocable gift to a charity. And donor-wise funds, and let's talk about the UK, are UK charities. And then allow a donor to suggest an onward distribution to other charities all over the world. So simply, it's like a holding vehicle, and it it administers the giving of individuals. And in the case of PRISM, groups, as well, that can collect money and onward distribute.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And what was it
1: that made you um, decide to establish a donor-advised fund? What, what gaps in the sector was Prism specifically responding to?
0: So I had set up the British arm of an American charity in the 90s, and I learned a lot from the Americans and saw donor-advised funds in America. Mm-hmm. And in the early 2000s, started looking at the UK market, and one had the Charities Aid Foundation, which is a big government-backed kind of mass market operation. But I realized there wasn't anything targeting the mid-upper end of the market and and offering a very sort of bespoke service. And so I did about a year and a half's worth of research and looked at prospective clients and spoke to prospective clients to see if there really was an appetite to create a slightly different donor-advised fund. And eventually... In 2005 created it but I, I very much looked at that American model initially and mm-hmm. saw how they treated their donors and what was going on over there.
1: And you mentioned um, you know the, the high to upper level and that, that kind of caste level how would you describe kind of the spectrum of DAFs that are out there is it is that
0: the main distinction are there any other kinds that you would point to? There are I mean the UK DAF market has grown in the last few years so a couple of the banks have actually created their own charitable donor advised fund. You know, one of them quite openly took them two, two, three years battling with the Charity Commission because the Charity Commission was not comfortable with the bank also being a charity or having a, a clear charitable operation, but they did succeed and it is for their clients. And each of the DAFs have slightly different structures So UBS, for example, have one. It's very focused on just UK charities. They have another one where it's focused on about 40 different charitable projects. So if you're interested in that, it's great. It's it's a very good service. Prism's ethos is it's a very efficient, flexible, and bespoke machine. And I set it up, I guess, with an entrepreneurial background with my co-partner Gideon and we built businesses and so although obviously Prism is a UK charity, we come to it thinking, what does a donor want? What kind of service do they really need? It needs to be responsive and efficient. And that's what they're used to in their other services in life with a bank or a law firm. So let's provide that to them. So mm-hmm. that's that's kind of our ethos mm-hmm. or the offering that we're very much trying to put into the market.
2: Absolutely. It's very aligned with our question as a podcast. What, what, do, what do donors want? Which is a, an excellent segue into the next topic we want to explore with you, which is which is really that question. So, of course, you know, there's lots of different ways to use and benefit from a DAF. And that's both for, for donors and for charitable organizations. But we were wondering if you could break this down for listeners and, and first starting with that donor side. So you mentioned earlier it's this vehicle, this kind of intermediary vehicle and, and tax efficient charitable vehicle which is super interesting and we were wondering if you could expand on that and and you know what kinds of donors seek out a DAF and what purpose does it usually serve for them great so we get usually
0: high net worth individuals who may have already started their ph- philanthropy journey or maybe beginning it but they need a vehicle now what has happened in the last few years is the regulatory backdrop is fierce. It's tough. You can't just say, I'm going to create my grant-making foundation. I'm going to create my operational charity. You need highly knowledgeable trustees. You need to create policies in place. Every year, your trustees need to be trained. So it's not something you can do lightly anymore. It's not a little fun thing on the side. Mm -hmm. And therefore, increasingly, donors do not want to create their own grant-making foundation, they create an account, a donor-advised fund instead. Now, they can label it. It can still be called the Joe Bloggs Foundation. They can have all the relationships with their charities. They still suggest where it's going to be distributed. They just don't have the worry of governance and compliance. And it's much cheaper running a donor-advised fund than creating one's own grant-making foundation. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: So, Because of that regulatory backdrop, donor-advised funds are growing, right? In this country, that's why there are more, because it's just too hard creating one's own entity unless it's really a day job and you have staff involved and that's really what you want to do Mm -hmm. in a meaningful, engaged, detailed way all day. Mm -hmm. So it just is easy. It allows someone to open this account and the other beauty about a donor advised fund is there are tax breaks associated with it. And those tax breaks are aligned to a gift of cash or shares or property, even art. So we do try and educate people on all those different possible ways of engaging in philanthropy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: A lot of the market just don't, they just, they don't know about it. Even the most familiar in the UK gift aid they, they don't, donors often don't sufficiently understand it. Mm -hmm. So it's really very easy. You can open an account within 48 hours. You know, it may take someone months and months and months to create their own grant making foundation today.
2: That's incredibly interesting and clearly a huge value add to so many donors and philanthropists. I I know you mentioned that there's varying stages of their philanthropy. Some are newer, some are more established in terms of how they think about their giving. And we recognize that you have many, many different clients and there's probably many trends there. But if there are any kind of overarching trends, would you say... In terms of how the donors that access Prism and DAFs, how do they typically think about their giving, and and what kind of amounts of of money and or or resources and assets are they moving through a DAF, and how often?
0: Each donor is very very different, and very different as to what they care about. So you know, I've got one donor trying to eradicate the worm disease schistosomiasis in Burundi. I've got another who passionately cares about the National Gallery and is supporting lunchtime public education lectures going on, other people supporting schools in the East End of London, other people supporting their old university in Australia. So it's so varied, Mm -hmm. and therefore how they come in is varied. Mm -hmm. Now, typically, though, most are giving hundreds of thousands and multi-millions and getting you know, perhaps a tax break associated with it whilst they earn income. But they may not all be distributing it within the year that they put the money in. They may say, here's four million, I'm distributing one million in year one, and I would like the balance asset managed in the interim, which is also very flexible as to how that may happen Mm -hmm. to ensure there is growth whilst the money's sitting there. However, just one of PRISM's key elements when a client comes in and signs a contract is we're not there just to hold money. We're there. What's the objective of PRISM? It's to support the charitable sector and get money out there. So within three years of establishing a donor-advised fund, someone needs to start distributing it out.
1: Mm-hmm. And in that journey when you're kind of supporting your your clients in that donor-centered way do you ever provide them with advice on where to give their funds so for example if they came with a specific interest area but they didn't know exactly where to give their funding
0: good question so we are very clear as to what we are and what we're not we are administrators we're not strategists so we'll support all the financial due diligence governance compliance payment processing assessing the charity, but we're not there to really help someone on their philanthropic strategic journey. And if someone needs that help, it's a very different job to the administration. We refer them. We refer them to people at IG who who have that expertise, who understand, who can take someone and navigate them through that journey. Where we may suggest a charity is if someone comes to us, and we did have a case where someone said, I care about social mobility and I'm gonna create my own charity around that whole area. And I said, just before you do that, I'd like to introduce you to the Sutton Trust and Sir Peter Lample, who's spending millions every year on that. That is his work. And after that, he now gives 50 to 100,000 pounds Mm -hmm. every year into the Sutton Trust. So where there is an obvious match and we know a really smart charity, and we do come across lots of smart charities, we may suggest they go and meet them and have a look, mm-hmm. but that's, that's the most we really do.
1: And you mentioned as part of that kind of administrative role that you play, the, the due diligence and, and without getting into, you know, the, the exact kind of uh, legalese of, of what that entails, what elements of that due diligence are most essential when you're, when you're assessing whether the, the place a donor wants to send their money is, is appropriate and compliant and, and suitable?
0: So it also depends whether the money's coming into a UK charity or going to an overseas charity, because when one gifts to an overseas charity, one can only apply those funds according to UK charitable law. So we've had donors before saying, well, it's fine, it's it's an American charity, it's got charitable status. And we say, that's great. However, American charitable law is very different to UK charitable law, and so You can't apply it necessarily in America. It's slightly broader around politics and and the human rights work that they do. And we have to be very, very specific how funds are utilised. We need a proposal. We need a budget. You know, we need to ensure every UK charity has policies in place, such as safeguarding. You know, these are the sorts of rules and regulations that have been upped and tightened in the last two to three years, You know, before, you could say, oh, it's a UK charity, that's fine. Well, that's no longer even fine. We will check when were the last accounts filed? Have they been late on filing? Do the accounts make sense? If you haven't got a safeguarding policy, we're not going to send you the money until you've created a robust safeguarding policy. So there's a lot of checks and balances. I mean, we've created very detailed kind of due diligence applications that we need entities to complete and, and fill in, particularly if they're overseas, and very clear subsequent reporting out mm. on use of funds as well. So we can really see how were those funds properly utilized. So you know that's why I was saying earlier on there's a lot of work today around making yeah, a gift definitely. to a charity. And you know, ensuring you're meeting all the rules and regulations mm. of the Charity Commission.
1: And a lot of what you're talking about, I think fundraisers would be used to used to hearing from foundations, right? So they'll be used to engaging with that kind of process and and being under that kind of scrutiny from a grants manager or a decision maker within a foundation. And for fundraisers who do know that DAFs exist and and what they are, one of the biggest questions that we get um, is how how can how can we access the funds that are in DAFs? Um And so from that perspective. Would you recommend um, that fundraisers engage with DAF directly? And if, you, if so, would you have any kind of recommendations of the do's and don'ts of doing that?
0: Very simply, no. And the reason, <laughs> no, is DAFs provide donors with protection and anonymity. You know, you can't look into a DAF and say, who are the donors? And that's what donors love as well. I mean, that's the other beauty of a DAF as opposed to a grant-making foundation. You don't get hundreds of applications as the donor from a charity, and no one knows where you've given and how much you've given. What I always say to fundraisers, right, and I was a fundraiser myself for many years, and growing Prism is fundraising in a different way. There is no shortcut to fundraising. There is no magic wand that says, here you go, here's your client, and just, they're going to give you a £100,000, no problem. It's called hard grafting, and it's building your network, and it's building your pyramid, and you meet someone, and they may introduce you to two or three people, and those two or three people, one may become a donor in two years' time. It's tough. It's really hard, and one has to be Resilient, and just continue down that path, and build it, and meet people, and knock on doors, mm. and go to networks. There's no easy fix. So, knocking on the door of a DAF, you're just going to get a big. You're going to get Anna saying no. no. <laughs> go graft on your pyramid. <laughs> I,
1: I think it's so interesting, though, because obviously, from from the perspective of someone who's wanting to, to raise money to to achieve impact, um, knowing a donor. And building a relationship with a donor directly and then that donor actually having their resources sat in a donor advice fund and therefore you guys doing that due diligence and that assessment for them is kind of a little bit like managing two relationships but for the purposes of, of one gift and so as, in addition to simply your answer of no don't do it are there any other common or big mistakes you see charitable organizations make when engaging with DAFs in that context
0: yes look once they have that relationship with the donor and the donor says here is my vehicle, then they have access. But, you know, it started with their relationship with the donor, not knocking on the door of the DAF. And sometimes also the mistake is, is that the donor relationship is key because that's where ultimately the money's coming from. But, you know, we've had before we need reporting. And the charity has, hasn't has actually given us the reporting, they've only given it to the donor. And then the donor gets, you know, a bit annoyed. Why haven't you also given it to my vehicle? So it, it is establishing, it is important to then establish a relationship with the DAF because they're effectively like the back office. They're like, you know, the administrator to that donor. So you do need to engage with them and look after them in the same way you do a donor. And... That donor just wants wants life to be easy. Mm-hmm. So the easier you can make it for a donor, you know, the, the better it is. So you, if you're giving a report to the donor, you give it to his daft too. Mm-hmm. And the donor hopefully understands the nature of that relationship both ways.
2: That's such great advice, and it's so interesting, the parallels between that, um, as Emily, as you were mentioning, that's, you know, the DAF and and the donor and that joint relationship management is what we've heard a lot from program officers on the show as well. Um, He said sometimes charities and fundraisers just go for the most senior person they can find within a philanthropic institution. Whereas their point of contact, their program officer gets left behind in some of the um, the details of that relationship management, and it becomes hard for that program officer to advocate on their behalf and and get things over the line. So I think that's really, really great advice and really clear for listeners. So I, I think that will be really useful for people. So now, you know thinking more about these these charitable organizations, Moving over to the charity side, so you've spoken a lot about how donors use a DAF and it's this you know, beautiful, bespoke, anonymous, um, efficient vehicle for them to execute their philanthropy, which is really, really useful for them. We also know that a lot of charitable organizations use DAFs too, and they get a lot of benefits. So can you can you speak to that? How? What are the main ways you see charitable organizations making use of DAFs? Absolutely.
0: So Prism calls that side of the operation, the collective fund. And the history behind that is early 2015, one of the big banks referred a tragedy. A baby in a family died and the family wanted to create a memorial. Did they want to create a whole nother operational charity, again with the trustees and the governance? No, they didn't. And You know, they didn't have the ability at that time even to think around that. So they just needed a quick, easy vehicle through which they could raise from a number of other donors money and decide on what the cause is. But it's a named memorial fund. Then at the same time, the World Food Programme came knocking on our door. And they had for October fifteen was the World Rugby. And they had ITV sponsoring it, the government matching it pound for pound. But they are owned by the UN in Rome. They are not a UK charity. And again, they needed a UK charitable vehicle through which to tax effectively raise money from lots of donors, simply online, texts. And so we created that facility. And then the refugee crisis broke in October 15. And lots of groups, Started in Just Giving, and Just Giving went well. Yeah, it's really interesting, but we don't really just send 150,000 pounds to the Calais Jungle. We're not set up to do that. And lots of groups found their way to prison. and so began really the growth of this collective fund. And what it does is it will target memorial funds. It will target cause related stuff like the refugee crisis. So you may have heard of Help Refugees Choose Love. It's one of the biggest refugee groups working in Europe. They actually operate under prison the gift fund. They are not their own entity. They are brilliant at working on the ground and building their operations and making grants out to the right partners. They didn't want to get involved in payment processing, financial due diligence around invoicing. We get You know, we have to pay an invoice to some people selling vegetables in Calais. Is it okay? You know, all the complexities around that we do. and We take on board. So that's cause related. And then the final piece that came our way was overseas charities. They may come into the UK and want to raise money from UK donors. It could be around a dinner, a specific fundraising dinner, or it could be just ongoing. So a lot of these groups would often create British friends of UK charities. And again, it's just so hard today. Unless you're raising hundreds of thousands every year with a team in place, you just, the navigation of the Charity Commission, of the banking world, you know, trying to even open a bank account is painful. So they open an account at Prism. And again, you know, they tax effectively raise money. They can do it online. It's a very easy facility. Or if they run a dinner, we do all the financial administration around the dinner and then send any net funds back overseas to the entity. So we've had a number, we have a lot of a number of British friends of we have a museum of modern art and some vance Vance is just about, you know, to start a whole fundraising campaign. We've had a, a very interesting one called Alexander house in Germany that was part of the Harding, it was a house owned by the Harding family that got taken over by the Nazis in the Second World War. They managed to reclaim this house and literally went through a whole renovation. And it's now a center of education, peace, reconciliation, and all that money, all the fundraising was done through, through PRISM as they raised money from UK donors tax effectively. And then their ongoing programming can also, they could raise funds in the UK to support now the programming side of it. So lots of really interesting different kinds of operations that the collective fund engages with. And again, it's it's simple, it's instantaneous. And we take on board all that compliance and governance and all the safeguarding policies and volunteer protection and insurance. So some of it's very complex mm-hmm. and we have a growing team and teams of experts who really navigate all of that for the client.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it's certainly aligned with what the kinds of questions we see our clients and network navigating and whether or not to use a DAF and especially around that international fundraising element. It's so key to have that tax-efficient vehicle in the geography that in which you're fundraising, and we've seen some organizations fall a bit flat, just assuming that if without that that things will still move as smoothly. So, that's certainly a really important point. And I also want to ask. So, you, you know, the way you describe it, and clearly, you know, with organizations like Help Refugees, it makes so much sense why Prism was the right choice and enabled them to work so quickly and to focus on impact rather than administration. And it sounds, from our experience and what, what what we know how people use DAFs, it's almost too good to be true in some contexts. It's so easy, so efficient. And so we're wondering if you could speak a little bit to, if you will, some of the limitations or some of, you know, if, if a charity or a charitable organization, rather, a social impact cause is making a decision about whether or not a DAF is appropriate for them at this stage, what are some of the limitation considerations they should be mindful of?
0: So... Sometimes we're an incubator in a way. We're stage one. And they may then go on to set themselves up as a charity. And that's great too. Mm -hmm. That model may work for them. I think making the decision, it's what kind of structure do they have? How much money are they going to raise? What is their three-year plan? Because it may be that actually they've got hundreds of thousands of pounds. They've got proper trustees in place. And it makes sense for them to create their own entity, and it's very complex and very detailed. We did have a a client who who actually is an individual client and also set up an operational, very complex medical charity trying to find a gene that will will help a specific illness. Mm -hmm. And he was going to run it as a collective fund. And actually, every conversation every week became more complex. He had more scientists, more labs, and it clearly was just probably just not right for a collective fund. He really did need to become, from the get-go, his own operational charity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is understanding quite what the plans are. I mean, we require anyone coming in to fill in a very in-depth application that a team assesses and, uh, you know, will go to the trustees as well to look at, is this right? Is it right for PRISM? Can we do it? Do we understand what they're doing? Because if we don't clearly understand, then we can't take on the risk management of them coming into prison either. So sometimes it could be a no from our perspective because we just don't have sufficient understanding and information. If they were applying to the Charity Commission, there's lots of questions that the Charity Commission would want to satisfy themselves if they were to grant them charitable status. We ask pretty much similar questions. Mm. So you're coming into the prison world and we take on a lot of risk, so we need to we need to understand that that's
2: okay for us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that incubator framework is really useful for listeners, the kind of the stage of, and the complexity of the organization and the nimbleness with which it needs to operate in and the speed. That's, yeah, that's really useful. Thank you. Mm,
1: definitely. So moving now to talk about a bit of controversy around donor advised funds. DAFs have come under a lot of criticism in recent years, especially in the U.S., where the market is much larger. And that criticism comes from voices that are challenging the power dynamics that are inherent in traditional philanthropy and wanting to hold wealth holders to account. And for listeners who don't know, many of these critiques center on the fact that DAFs can sometimes be considered a tax loophole and people can you know, put their money in there and receive the tax benefit and maybe not. Uh, mobilize it or spend it immediately, and that money can, in some cases, accumulate over time and, and, and people can be frustrated that it's not being spent on, on impact. Uh, it's very different in in the US to the UK, which Anna has already mentioned, but to give listeners a sense of the scale, in the US, in 2017, there was over 100 billion of assets in DAC accounts and only 29 billion was paid out to charitable causes in that same time period. So, Anna, as a CEO of a
0: DAF in the UK, what are your thoughts on this? Look, as you said, it's a very different level to the UK. Um, And DAFs have been, I don't actually know when they first started in America, but, but significantly longer than the UK. Look, I always feel around the tax, I recall, was it 2012 in this country where the government initially Put a ceiling on gift aid and there was an uproar from the charitable sector and it was reversed within six weeks because and a lot of the news i remember watching a bbc news reporter saying isn't it terrible that this donor has this tax relief and is benefiting and i thought you don't understand right when someone makes a gift to a charity they are giving money away so yes, there is gift aid tax relief on a gift of cash, but they're still giving the money away. They could choose to go and buy a car instead or buy a painting instead. They don't, they give it away. So in the same way, you know, yes, there is money sitting in these charitable vehicles. They are irrevocable gifts to charities. Should more money be distributed? Possibly. Is a lot of money distributed? Yes, it is. I mean, as I said, prism enforced within our contracts that that distribution has to start within three years because we don't just want to accumulate money. However, if money's coming in and going out, you know, it may take time. And in order to sometimes work out the best use of funds, you know, there's something to be said, maybe analyse it and assess it. You know, right now because of COVID, um, some of the large foundations are taking out loans to get money out there. I know. Yeah. So that's a another way of looking at it. You know, charitable giving is complex, and actually, people don't sufficiently understand it. And they don't understand the tax breaks in the UK or in America sufficiently. Lots of people don't, lots of fundraisers don't. My message to a fundraiser is go and understand all the possible tax incentives for your donors and educate them so that they may give you more if they're aware of it. Mm -hmm. Most charities don't even say on their websites, they talk about in the UK gift aid, do they then say if you're a higher rate taxpayer, you may be eligible to be claiming a further 25% on your gift? No, they don't. Why not? I don't know. Because they probably aren't aware of it
2: themselves. Mm.
0: I don't know. You know, Prism also has something called Prism Offshore, as do many other DAFs, which is a fantastic way of, again, encouraging UK donors with cash offshore to make a non-taxable remittance. Other charities could create it. Or, again, make someone aware of it. Encourage them to gift Mm more. Get money out there. So that's that's my defence of that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, there's a couple of things in what you've mentioned that I think are, are are useful to pull out in terms of the role that DAF might play in changing the changing the system or kind of evolving how donors in, engage with, with giving. So one of them is that you've got this three year requirement. So people can put money in a DAF with you and then you require them to start dispersing those funds within three years. So it can't just sit there. And then the second thing you just said there is is around the, the innovative ways that the that tax relief can be used to, to achieve greater impact than giving and, and influence greater giving and I'm wondering if you see a role for donor advised funds in, ed- in providing that education piece you know clearly you have a, a comprehensive understanding of, of taxation in the markets where you're working and so I'm, I'm wondering if there are well, I'm wondering if you agree that that is a potential role for donor advised funds in, in providing that value and if there are any other roles you can see um for DAF like yours in involving in that system um, to be better
0: I do I I actually do I mean we have taken that on board And we do run many lunch and learns Mm. where we can, a lot into the private sector to educate people, you know, what is a grant-making foundation? What is a donor-advised fund? What are the tax incentives? So that they have a language and a knowledge and can open that discussion with a donor or with a client or encourage them on that journey. So we really do that as much as we can just to give people the skills. I recall a very long time ago when, when sharegiving was was relatively, the tax breaks around it were relatively new. I remember having involved with some roundtable discussions for charities actually. And a lot of charities very, very nervous, you know, talking about tax evasion as opposed to tax avoidance. And unfortunately those words have been very muddied and people are very confused as to what's okay and what's not okay. But it is okay. <laughs> and there are legitimate government tax initiatives to encourage a gift of shares to a charity and I do remember educating lots of charities and people just didn't know and were too nervous and didn't want to accept it and I remember Prism. before we ever went down that route we did take some legal advice we had an opinion the trustees considered it and actually at the end of the day I remember years ago we created from six donors another million pounds worth of charity through a gift of shares, that was quite complex. It was quite hard. The trustees worked incredibly hard on, on on understanding it, but we didn't shy away from it. We educated people and went forward and said, "No, let's do this because it's legitimate, and let's encourage more people to do it and think about it." So, mm. I do think it is a duty of DAFs, particularly. You know, we have the knowledge and have a skill base, mm-hmm. and so I think the more people we can let know then hopefully the more money may flow into the sector
1: mm. and what you're pointing to here is kind of the understanding on the part of charities of, of, of how that that the tax considerations of their donors might come into play. Um, Just going back to your donor clients and and the stage of their giving that they come to you, do you find that they're often coming with a a full understanding of of those tax benefits or is there an education piece on that side where you have to, you know, what are the kind of the main motivations that that taxation and tax benefits bring to, to the donor clients that you work with?
0: Yeah, they have often, they just don't have the knowledge either. I mean, I've had some really incredible conversations where I wouldn't believe it unless I'd been in the conversation with highly sophisticated people who earn a lot of money, who also give a lot of money. And I mean, they, they don't have a clue about, they've never heard of share giving or a gift of property, but they, don't, they really don't understand gift aid. Mm-hmm. And, and they're higher rate taxpayers. And they've been giving out hundreds of thousands of pounds and were not aware they could be eligible to be making this this claim in their tax returns. And they sit there They say, no, 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 no. And I say, yes, yes, yes. They say, but why hasn't my accountant told me? I don't understand. And then you talk to the accountant, and the accountant says, well, philanthropy is very personal. And, you know, they haven't presented me with any receipts. They haven't told me anything. And I just assumed they haven't done anything. And so it's just left blank. And people find it very hard to have that conversation. You know, a great fundraiser is someone who, who, I mean, they do need to be thick-skinned, But it's not, people aren't rejecting the fundraiser. One has to have the confidence to open up a conversation and ask someone about their philanthropy. I learned years ago when I was first involved in fundraising in the 90s, there was a brilliant fundraiser, an Israeli chap who would come into the UK and I would sit with him in these meetings. And in an hour's meeting, he'd basically listen for 50 minutes get a real sense of the donor's interests. And the ask, and there was always an ask, because he was American trained. The ask came in the last 10 minutes, a very clear number with a very clear program. And he listened to what that donor wanted to do and what the interests were. And But he asked them, you know, lots of donors say, no one ever asked me.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely. We hear that all the time. And it's it is kind of astonishing the the simplicity and the importance of that absolutely essential part of, of the donor journey. But that's that's really useful and, and this is it's such an interesting conversation. I think the this education piece and, and the role and the really empowering role that DAFs can play in the landscape of the system, educating on on, on tax benefits, educating on on um you know the the importance of dispersing funds and, and we love that rule or that that kind of process of prism where you encourage spending within those first three years. I think it's a really fantastic example to set for the sector. And before we wrap it up, just another thing to reflect on is we've heard so much in, you know, reading and exploring and speaking about the critiques around DAFs and, and particularly in the U.S. market, as as you've noted. That not only do the funds kind of sit there and accumulate over time with not enough of an incentive to get them out the door, but that when people do come to the point where they are going to, to get something out the door, they are going to spend their assets on charity. Oftentimes, the accumulation is so large that the amounts are so large, and then those gifts then go to very large charities and institutions because they can absorb those six, seven-figure gifts And then, you know, smaller charities and and grassroots movements and groups lose out on those on those kinds of opportunities. And that's it's a shame. It makes sense. But it's certainly an area as well that we're very passionate about at IG as, as the strategic side, as you mentioned. We really see that as a role that we want to play in this system around educating the importance of strategic philanthropy, the importance of giving to beyond the usual suspects. While they are important, there's so much more to it. It's certainly something we think about a lot and a responsibility we're very invested in. I think,
0: look, competition is important. Competition in the sector is important. I think the sector is going to be facing some very hard decisions Mm -hmm. now, post, well, we're not post COVID, but if we ever get post COVID, Mm -hmm. because 50% may not survive. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are at least 154,000 charities in the UK. Most have very small income some of those should absolutely be retained maintained maybe there needs to be mergers maybe there's a job for someone to look at these smaller charities and try and bring some together Mm -hmm. to push them forward some quite challenging times ahead i think but but yeah really important that the the smaller charities too but they will need more help
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely All right. This is fantastic. This has been so interesting. Certainly, I I can imagine listeners are going to take so much away from this, whether they were already familiar with DAFs um, or whether this is a new acronym for them. I think there's uh, infinite insights for them to walk away with and think about. So thank you so much for your time, Anna. Before we sign off, we wanted to ask one final question, which is for listeners, if they are going to take one thing away from this conversation, what do you really want them to remember?
0: Be patient and learn about all those tax reliefs to encourage more philanthropy into the sector. I'd, I'd say those, those two things and persevere, don't give up.
2: Mm-hmm. Fabulous. Thank you. That is an excellent note to end on. Very much aligned with what every single donor on the show has said so far. Be patient, build relationships, people give to people, all of those elements. So, so essential. So thank you for echoing them. And uh, and thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Been lovely. Thank you. That's all we've got for today. First of all, a huge thank you again to Anna for her generous time and advice and for breaking down DAFs for listeners and and really being so open to dive into these topics with us.
1: Stay tuned for more episodes coming from us soon. And in the meantime, check out IG's website and our Medium blog to stay up to date on our thought leadership. know where to find us but i'll remind you anyway on twitter we're at ig underscore advisors and advisors spelt with an o the american way despite my attempt. our website is impactandgrowth.com and you can email us they're all just our names at ig Advisors.com, and you can email us to arrange a virtual tea or coffee and hopefully a real coffee sometime soon.
2: And of course, a huge thank you again to our official sponsor, the Siegel Family Foundation, for making this all possible with their generosity and partnership. As Emily said, there are more episodes coming your way soon. And if you do have any questions for one of them for a future guest, please do submit them via the Google form. It's linked in the show notes and you can send any feedback and any requests for guests and any questions there we read them all and and we love hearing from you so thanks again for listening thanks again to our fantastic guest anna and to prism and we'll see you soon